0: from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com.
1: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings and welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Laura Stanley. It's Monday morning, May 23rd, and um, well, if only we could just turn the page on last week. On Wednesday, the legislative committee that drafted the House CNR bill marked it up, uh, by which I mean they amended it, voted on it, and released it to the full House. And as we all know, it differs substantively from the bipartisan Senate CNR bill in a number of areas and amounts to a serious political challenge to child nutrition programs. Um, We've talked about most of this bill already. Uh, I invite you to listen to our April 18th episode if you need a refresher. Um, What we haven't talked about is a new amendment calling for a pilot program in three states that would replace federally funded and regulated school meals with locally run programs funded with block grants. Um, Politico reports that this addition to the bill was crafted under advisement from Heritage Action, which is a 501c4 affiliated with the Hardline Conservative Heritage Foundation. Um, today's episode is not about bl- the Block Grants proposal, um, but I mention it to set the stage for today's topic. We are going to be talking about the House Republican case for downsizing community eligibility, or CEP. Um, we've, we have have seen a fair amount of press on this matter, uh, which is a good sign that the media is picking up on the gravity of the situation. Uh, that said, critical details about how the policy works are going missing. And and that leaves CEP vulnerable to misleading claims about whom the program benefits and what it costs. So um, get ready to drill down. We're going to run a little longer than usual today. I'm, I'm really excited about today's guests, and I hope you'll stay with us all the way through. Um, our first guest is Zoe Newberger, uh, a leading authority on CEP and the very best person I can think of to explain it. Um, Zoe is a senior analyst with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a research and policy institute that pursues policies designed to reduce poverty and inequality. Inequality in a fiscally responsible manner. Um, Zoe specializes in child nutrition programs. In her previous position at the White House Office of Management and Budget, she was responsible for oversight of over 30 billion in federal, federal spending on TANF, child care, child nutrition, WIC, and low-income tax credits. So. Uh, safe to say, Zoe's a very smart lady. <laughs> uh, after station break, we will hear what CEP looks like in practice from Dr. Morris Lees, who is superintendent of schools in rural Coffee County, Georgia. So, Zoe Newberger, welcome to Inside School Food. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. So, you know, CEP um, entered our lives along with Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. Um, it's still a really new program, but it's been you know, in, a, in the short time it's been with us, a, a game changer for school nutrition. Why is it so important?
2: I think that's absolutely right. It's really changing the way that the school meal programs operate in low-income communities around the country. This is not the first time that there's been an option to provide universally free meals, Um The earlier options were Provision 2 and 3, but they never achieved the kind of take-up that community eligibility has. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the key reasons for that is that community eligibility does away with applications altogether once a school district opts in. It relies exclusively on the data from direct certifications, which every school district is doing anyway. Right, right. So the take-up has been really, really widespread, as you said. It was rolled out a few states at a time. This is only the second year of nationwide implementation, and is very widespread already.
1: Yeah. So let's let's go to that. Um, How many um, of the currently? um, I mean, how many districts are now enrolled, and or you know, and or how many children are affected by this program?
2: There are eighteen thousand schools using community eligibility, and those schools are in almost three thousand school districts. Collectively, they serve eight and a half million students,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that represents just about half of the eligible schools. so there are still many schools that could quali- you know could adopt community eligibility that haven 't already, but to have half of the eligible schools using it just two years in is pretty striking, and, and I think it speaks to um, how effectively community eligibility simplifies operating the meal program?
1: Yeah, and and I know that there's there's certain regions where the program has been particularly um, transformative because the uptake is so high, and they, and interestingly they are, are rural states like North Dakota, Kentucky, West Virginia.
2: Yeah, that that's quite true. I mean, so part of the thinking behind community eligibility was that it was designed to be an option that would be very simple for a school district to adopt and that could work well in any kind of school district, so urban or rural, large or small, uh, schools with a lot of technological capacity and schools that don't have that. And I think we're really seeing that in the take-up. So, for example, you mentioned there's been very high take-up in some rural states. It even is as high as 100% of the eligible schools in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, there's high take-up in some very different places. For example, in Texas, nearly all of the large urban areas in Texas are using community eligibility, and there are more than a million students at community eligibility schools in Texas alone.
1: Okay, well, so the House CNR bill is actually proposing a downside. How how do they propose to accomplish this?
2: So they are proposing to change the criteria. by which it gets determined which schools can participate in community eligibility. So a school's eligibility for community eligibility would change. Right now, the way community eligibility works is schools can adopt it if 40% or more of their students are what's called identified students. Those are students who have been identified by another program as at especially high risk of food insecurity. Um, to use school lunch lingo, it's school children who have automatically qualified mm-hmm. and are directly certified. So the largest group of students would be uh, children who are receiving SNAP, which are other, uh, used to be known as food stamp benefits. It would also include children who are homeless or in foster care, other particularly vulnerable groups. So if 40% of the students at a school fall into that category, then the school can offer meals at no charge to all of their students. Mm -hmm. What the House is proposing to do is to lift that threshold from 40 percent to 60 percent. So under the House bill, a school would have to have 60 percent of the students automatically enrolled for free meals in order to qualify for community eligibility, and that would have a very profound impact. Of the schools that have already adopted community eligibility, about 7,000 would um, have an identified student percentage below that proposed threshold of 60%. And mm-hmm. they serve 3.4 million students. And then yes.
1: there's a number we'll of to, districts not enrolled yet that would also be affected, like they, they could That's right. Yeah. There mm-hmm. are about
2: 11,000 more schools that are currently eligible for community eligibility that would no longer have the option to adopt it. Okay. Well, And it's important to keep in mind yeah. that, some of the schools that are affected in that 40 to 60 percent category could be grouped with higher poverty schools and mm-hmm. continue to offer community eligibility, but school districts would have to do that grouping, and we don't know which schools would be able to be grouped in and continue.
1: Right, right. So they'd have to shift things around, but many would, would That's right. be forced to drop out. So so let's just go to, you know, what reasons do proponents of this policy change, this shift from 40 percent um direct certified to 60% direct certified. What, what, you know, reasons do they give for raising that threshold?
2: There are a few different reasons that we've heard. Um, I think, let me start with the rationale that they don't want federal funds to go to children who don't qualify for free or reduced price meals. Mm-hmm. So... First, before I even talk about community eligibility, let's keep in mind that every meal um, that goes to a child in the paid category is subsidized. That's a very, you know, important investment that helps schools offer meal programs. But it's just incorrect to say that Congress is not funding meals um, for kids who don't qualify for free or reduced-price meals already Mm -hmm. in the regular program. But now let's turn to community eligibility as a whole. Basically, um, the way community eligibility is designed to work is that the, um, the share of meals that are reimbursed under the traditional system when schools take application is approximated under community eligibility. So the idea is that even though all students eat at no charge, not necessarily every meal is reimbursed at the free reimbursement rate, the highest rate. The Um, the school's reimbursement share is tied to its poverty level Mm -hmm. and specifically to the identified student percentage. So the goal was that schools would receive approximately the same share of their meals reimbursed under community eligibility at the free rate as they would have if they took applications. But they can manage without the additional fees from parents because they see administrative savings um, because they don't have to take applications or do verification or track eligibility, and they also achieve economies of scale when participation in the meal programs increases. Mm-hmm. So those that reduces costs. Now, if under community eligibility, those savings are not enough. Um, to cover the gap, school districts would have to contribute non-federal funds. That well, happens in some instances.
1: Say before we get into that, I just want to be really clear on this mm-hmm. 1.6 multiplier thing. So so to to get 100 percent, to have your meals uh, covered 100 percent, you'd have to be at – exactly 62.5 or above direct certified, right? So, um, right. right. So say you're lower, say you're 50 or you're 45. Mm-hmm. Y- y- you're not getting that 100% level of federal reimbursement. You're getting less. That's right. Because you're multiplying that number of direct certified by 1.6. Mm-hmm. What's so what's the rationale? Or, I mean, you explained the rationale, but how, how did you come up with that? Or how did, not you, but you <laughs> well, know the, what I mean. The how did thinking
2: was, as I said earlier, the community eligibility uses that core group of identified students to approximate the share of students that would qualify for free or reduced-price meals if applications were taken. So then the question becomes, well, how do you approximate that? So at the time the provision was being developed, there were analyses done that found that for every ten students who were identified students automatically qualifying, another six students completed an application and were approved that way. Mm -hmm. So That ratio, that 10 to 6, led to the 1.6 multiplier. So the goal with the 1.6 multiplier is to approximate the share of students that would be approved for free or reduced price meals if the school took application. So let's take a couple of concrete examples. A school that's right at that 40% threshold to qualify for community eligibility, you would take the 40% identified student percentage, multiply it by 1.6, that gets you to 64%. And under community eligibility, 64% of the meals would be reimbursed at the free rate and the remaining meals at the paid rate. Mm -hmm. In a school with an ISP, identified student percentage of 50%, 80% of the meals would be reimbursed at the free rate. So again, there's a great deal of misunderstanding because all students eat at no charge, with people thinking that all the meals are reimbursed as though the kids are in the free category, and that's not the case. It is a graduated reimbursement.
1: Right. And and that is why I'm so glad to have you on the show to drill down. I mean, I know these, you know, it feels like we're getting bogged down in the details, but we're not because they're really critical. Um, You know, uh, chairman John Klein in his introductory remarks on Wednesday said that CEP and I'm quoting here allows federal dollars to subsidize students who are not otherwise eligible. That's not exactly the case,
2: right? That's right. The goal is to approximate, um, the same share of, reimbursing the same share of meals at the free rate as the school would get if they took applications. Now, that 1.6 multiplier is used for every school and school district around the country. It's mm-hmm. based on averages. So it, um, it's not likely to be exactly the right ratio for a particular school. And some schools, if you calculated their own Ratio it would be a little bit higher or a little bit lower, but we think it's a very reasonable proxy when you're looking across the board.
1: Okay. So, so districts that aren't at that 62.5 mark and they're getting less than 100% reimbursement, how do they, they have to come up with a way to make, make up for the missing federal reimbursement because they are not allowed to charge. I mean, That's what are some of the ways that they, they do this?
2: Well, one important way is through administrative savings. So they no longer have to process applications. They no longer have to do the verification process to um, check a sample of applications to make sure that students are eligible. And they no longer, on a daily basis, have to monitor who is in the free, reduced-price-or-paid category at the point of service. So taken together, those can lead to very substantial administrative savings. And then another way that schools achieve savings, which is generally true, is as participation goes up, there are economies of scale, so the per meal cost goes down. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, under community eligibility, participation does increase.
1: That's an so important point. see
2: those economies of scale, that's right, yeah. but it really is important for every school district that's considering community eligibility to look at their own current reimbursements, what they think they would get under community eligibility and whether they think they could cover their costs, and if not, if they would have um, non-federal funds to contribute to make up the difference.
1: So it's very much a decision that's made locally and as is appropriate right. for their business model and for their customers and so forth. Exactly. Um, right, right, right. So, okay, that's, okay. so that's one argument um, that yeah. we have clarified here. Another argument that um, proponents of the policy change give is that the funding or the money saved would be shifted to, paying for summer meals. Does the House bill actually do this?
2: The House bill um, does make very modest improvements in summer meals. It also includes an increase in the reimbursement for breakfast. Those are those very important investments that benefit low-income children. Um, However, it is a false choice to say that you need to make it harder for schools to offer breakfast and lunch. um, Schools schools in high poverty neighborhoods in mm-hmm. order to make it easier for low income kids to get meals during the summer. Kids need three meals a day year round. We need investments in our school meals program as well as in our summer programs to make sure that they get that and we don't have to choose between the two. We yeah. should find savings elsewhere in order to make the needed invested in investments in both of those programs. There's another rationale you had asked me earlier about the different reasons that are given mm-hmm. um, that I wanted to speak to which is that they want community eligibility to be more targeted. And this is related to making, you know, the last question that you asked about other investments. And I think there's actually a widespread misunderstanding of what that 40% threshold represents. There was even um, an op-ed that Representative Rukita, who introduced the uh, reauthorization bill, published earlier this week that made this mistake. A lot of people hear that 40% and think it is, um, it means that 40% of the students are qualified for free or reduced price meal, the whole group, mm-hmm. and so the argument is, well, that's less than half. Why do they really need to provide meals at no charge to all students? But we know from what we've talked about earlier that that 40% is just a subset of the children who would qualify for free or reduced price meals. It's the ones who automatically qualify right and that yeah schools that meet that 40% threshold have a much higher share of students that would qualify if they took applications so i think there is something of a misunderstanding about the poverty level of the schools that are already participating they are by yeah. and large you know serving very very low income communities and low income students and unfortunately you know at schools where the vast majority of students are low-income, the students who don't qualify for free or reduced-price meals are often not much better off.
1: Yes, yes. Let's talk about that, because this, you know, community eligibility does, um, you know, eliminate that problem, those, those children in the margins.
2: That's right. I mentioned earlier that participation tends to go up when schools adopt community eligibility, and one aspect of that is that, you know, there's sometimes stigma associated with Mm -hmm. walking into the cafeteria or eating a free or reduced price meal. And that goes away in community eligibility schools. And so participation increases, not just for the kids who are on the margins who might have had to pay a reduced price fee or a paid fee before, but also for the lowest income kids who might, we hear this especially for middle and high school students that sometimes they will opt to skip a meal because they're so concerned about their responses if they were to eat.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll, Dr. Lees will be talking about that also. Um, you know, Zoe, I, I spoke about this issue with one of uh, Inside School Foods advisor, Gita Grother-Sweeney, who's a food service director in Portland, Oregon, and she, she told me About um, the community of Somali refugees that her district serves, and she said that um, they tend to lose those children when they have to apply as opposed to getting uh, meals through community eligibility, because um, the mom at home typically doesn't even read in her own language. Um, they do send the applications out in, in their language, but they, they don't read it. Um, and when dad comes home and reads the application, there, there is a, because of what these people have been through, where they're coming from, a deep distrust of any request from information from the government. So she said, what Gita said was that these kids are, are not... Uh, intending not to eat unless uh, their school is enrolled in community eligibility. Um, so, very sad.
2: That's a really important point. One mm-hmm. of the other arguments that has been made to justify the, the cut to community eligibility is that any student who is currently eligible for a free or reduced-price meal would remain eligible. All they'd have to do is apply. Mm-hmm. But um, But that's troubling to us because we know that Low-income families don't always apply for free meals, even if they qualify. There are a variety of factors at play, as you noted. Um, and even for the children who do apply and get approved, we know they don't always eat. So this, the change we think would have um, detrimental effects on low-income children, mm-hmm. as well as the schools that are struggling to serve them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, And let's talk about what would be the consequences um, for districts that would have to return to accepting applications that, you know, the food service programs have had you know, tremendous costs and you know labor lifted from their system. They'd have to go Absolutely. back to that, right?
2: That's right. That's yeah. right. So, you know, schools and low-income communities face a lot of challenges. The last thing we should be doing is making things harder for them. And mm-hmm. that was you know, one of the great things about community eligibility is it's kind of government at its best getting out of the way of high poverty schools, making the meals programs easier to run so that they can devote more resources to higher quality meals or other educational priorities rather than paperwork. And this proposal would reinstate all that paperwork and administrative work that was just taken away.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, given, given that, you know, enrolling in community eligibility calls for uh, a big change in your business plan and how you go about doing these things, um, what about the districts that are eligible that haven't enrolled yet? You know, is there a concern that Um, uncertainty over the future of this program will slow uptake in the coming school year?
2: Absolutely, I mean, we're right at the point in the year where school districts are making those decisions. Every state had to publish a list on May 1st of the schools that are eligible for community eligibility in the district, and those districts are now at the point where they are considering whether it would be beneficial for them. And certainly uncertainty about the future of the provision and how it might work could make them more hesitant. Mm-hmm. That said, I think it's really important to keep in mind that we are early in the legislative process. Um, you know, For there to be an actual change in community eligibility, a bill would have to pass the House, pass the Senate, and be signed by the President. We have had no indication that there's any interest in the Senate in making any changes to community eligibility. The bill that passed out of committee there doesn't make any changes to community eligibility. The administration is very supportive of community eligibility. So fortunately, we are a long way from these proposed changes that were voted on by the House committee um, actually becoming law.
1: Thank you for reminding us all of that. That was really good to hear. Um, but, but you know, even, give, even so, Zoe, is there concern that the policy change is an attempted first step in future elimination of community eligibility?
2: Definitely. You know, you mentioned that Heritage Action has um, has urged, you know, supports this change and urged it. They've actually called for eliminating community eligibility. There was an amendment offered during the markup to change the threshold all the way up to 80% right, from the current 40%. That amendment failed. So, you know, the bill that passed out of committee has the 60%. But I do think there is interest in some quarters in going even further than what's in this bill. Um, but again, I think there are Very important players who um, understand how well community eligibility is working for schools in high poverty neighborhoods and um, don't want to impose additional paperwork on them.
1: Yeah, I kind of wondered, that that was Congressman Wahlberg who introduced the amendment for for an 80% threshold. I'm just wondering, are there any districts um, or schools that actually have 80% um, identified direct certified students? It would be very rare. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. If, if it would in effect phase the program out. So, well, yeah. Zoe, many thanks for your clarity today. We we did get into the weeds on this topic as we as promised, but it didn't really feel like that. Thanks to you, you are indeed the best person to explain this. Oh, uh,
2: thank you, and thanks for taking the time to explore it. We think it's extremely important. We ought, we think so too.
1: Um, so, Zoe Newberger and her colleagues at the Center on Budget and Public Policy Priorities and at FRAC have drafted the go-to materials on CEP and anticipated impacts of proposed policy change if it goes through. Um, so see today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com for links to those materials. Um, next up, Georgia School Superintendent Morris Leese will make a compelling case for staying the course on CEP. Stay with us.
4: system determines eligibility for free lunch based on one's family income many families whose income happens to be above the threshold a little bit are still struggling to pay for that fee i have friends who have to choose between eating and going on a school trip or buying a review book i just think that kind of dilemma shouldn't be something that students should go through on a daily basis Additionally, coming from an immigrant community, I have friends uh, that their parents don't want to disclose their certain information on the school lunch form because they fear that would jeopardize their immigration status. As a result, those students often skip lunch and cannot have a productive day in classrooms. Last year, when we were allowed to have our phones in school, students would go out of their way just to take pictures of people eating school lunch. I happened to be a victim of the situation, and I must admit, it got me highly upset to know later on that night I would be clowned on social media. It made me not want to show my face in school, so I can only imagine what it did to those who knew free lunch would be their only meal. The current school lunch system embedded in public schools allows all negativity to emerge from other students. The process of getting lunch includes students knowing who was eligible for school lunch and who was not. Students who are able to get free lunch are suddenly looked upon for eating what we know now as free free. From this process emerges stigma, bullying, labeling, put downs, stereotypes, etc. This really should not be the case in any learning environment, especially school.
1: Welcome back. Um, What you just heard were messages from three New York City high school students, Tianya Zhang, Amina Abdurahmane, and Janice Thomas. Um, Janice referred to this derogatory term free-free, which teenagers here in New York City use to describe school meals and the kids who eat them. Um, You know, imagine being so embarrassed and even hounded on social media uh, to the point where you feel like you're better off going hungry. Uh, This is real. Uh, Many thanks to New York City's Lunch for Learning for putting me in touch with these student advocates for CEP. Uh, Lunch for Learning is a diverse coalition-based campaign working to bring CEP to New York City schools. You will find a link to their website on today's show page. Um, Our next guest has a lot to say on the subject of stigma over free school meals and a whole lot more. Um, He is Dr. Morris Lease, and he is superintendent of the Coffee County School System in Georgia. Dr. Lease is a lifelong educator who has served at his whole career in Georgia and as a superintendent since 2009. Uh, Coffee County has had its elementary schools, middle school, and ninth grade campus enrolled in community eligibility for two years. The district's percentage of identified students is less than 60%, so, Coffee County would lose its access to CEP if the threshold um, were to be raised. Um, welcome to Inside School Food, Dr. Leese.
5: Hello, Laura. I'm glad to be on the show. I'm
1: glad to have you. Um, You know, let's get started with a look at your community. Where where is Coffee County in Georgia?
5: We are in South Georgia. If you're familiar with the metro Atlanta area, we're about 200 miles south of Atlanta. We're about 75 miles north of the Florida border. So we're in the middle of the state in South Georgia, and uh, we're a rural community, uh, the county seat of Coffee County is Douglas, Georgia, and we uh, have approximately forty-three thousand residents in Coffee County. And we have some outline communities or towns of Ambrose, Broxton and Nichols. So we're a we're a small uh, South Georgia school system. Mm-hmm. We've got approximately seventy-seven hundred students, and. Uh, our local economy is, is based on agriculture. It's our largest industry. Mm-hmm. And we also have some light manufacturing. We have uh, PCC Airfoils; They produce airplane airfoils for airplane engines. And we also have a Walmart distribution facility that employs about five or 600 people. And we have a poultry processing plant and some uh, modular housing and, and uh enclosed cargo manufacturing operations here in douglas but uh... we're i think what you could call your typical uh... rural school system in in georgia Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. and these these industries are not you know unionized so folks are not generally making those kind of higher Mm -hmm. wages you you said to me that the, you know your your students parents are generally making you know between ten and fifteen dollars an hour at work
5: that's right Mm we uh... you know ag is our largest industry and and because of that we have a fairly large number of of immigrant workers uh, our our uh, hispanic uh, uh, population is up around seventeen um, percent for the school system some of our schools uh we have over thirty uh, percent uh, immigrant or hispanic population mm. now in our school system uh Many of the jobs in our community, as you alluded to, uh, don't pay wages of much more than uh, $15 an hour. That would be a fairly high wage for our wow. community. Wow. Uh, yeah. So 10 to $15 an hour is, is probably your typical wage. We um, have 28.1% of our population lives at or below the federal poverty level uh, Our median income is thirty four thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars per capita income is sixteen thousand dollars yeah um so you know we, we are a a proud community, but I think it's fair to say we have a, a large number of what you could describe as working working poor working poor. a lot of mm-hmm. you know a lot of our community members they're working they're proud people they're hard working people but but the wages just don't allow them to to uh uh, to to have much more income than than what the median is, which is thirty four thousand dollars. Right. Uh, so
1: you talked about pride, um, and I know that's a that's a huge factor in your community. Um, you were hesitant to propose CEP because of the culture there. Like, what you know, what what were you concerned about when you when you brought it up?
5: I was. We you know we have a, a fairly conservative. Uh, population I would say even though we have a fairly uh, poverty stricken population they're still uh, conservative and and uh, you know when you talk about uh, free meals uh, you know that that's not something that a lot of folks uh, in in our community uh, are proud of or would would I would think would get too excited about mm-hmm. and uh, but so I was hesitant when we when we looked into this program, but I will tell you this: after finishing our second year of it, I've not had one person come to me and tell me they thought this was a bad program for our community and for our children. Uh, it's been quite the contrary, uh, from all perspectives, from our our poor population to our wealthier population, uh, including physicians and and uh, business leaders in our community uh, there's been no opposition to CEP locally as a matter of fact uh... many of our, our uh... leaders in the business community and and even in the medical community have expressed to me that that they think this program really makes sense for children right. uh... when you have prior to CEP we were seventy three percent free and reduced mm-hmm. uh, so with a 73% free-reduced rate, uh, you know, the majority uh, of our students were eligible for free-reduced. And, and as was mentioned earlier in the show, and I've talked with one of my uh, nutrition assistant directors who's been here with me this morning as is preparing for this, this talk, and she shared with me that, that we had a lot of parents who even though we were seventy three percent free or reduced under the old system that didn't follow through with signing up mm-hmm. for free or reduced under the old system.
1: And that do uh, you think was out of a sense of pride and not, you know, not wanting to take from the federal government?
5: We've talked about that, yes, mm-hmm. that sense of pride and not wanting to take a a, a handout so to speak, mm-hmm. uh you know, in and, and you know, people who are working but but uh want to provide for their families, but can't. And in those cases, a lot of times what we saw was kids would come to school and they didn't eat. Right. Well, the parents didn't fill out the paperwork, didn't follow through with it, and therefore we had children at school who were hungry and didn't have the money to buy lunch. I was told a story by one of our cafeteria managers who told me that she would see children before CEP come to school with their little lunch box, and they would open it up and might have a bag of chips in it. And that was all they had. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, it was somewhat cover for that child to be able to bring. They're bringing a the lunch, but when you look closely at it, it's certainly not a healthy lunch and was very minimal uh, at best. So, yeah. uh, you know, those children now are eating. They're eating a good hot lunch from our cafeteria. Yeah. Despite yeah. the fact that their parents wouldn't follow through with filling out the paperwork Um that would qualify them for free reduced under I, the old yeah, system.
1: it's interesting. So, as long as everyone's doing it, it's it's um, it's not embarrassing. You know, um, you you don't have to worry that the person processing the application is someone you see in the neighborhood or a church or whatever. There's it's just for everybody. It makes a huge that's right. difference. Um, and uh, then of course with your adolescents, even those that had filled out application, there's embarrassment about accepting the meal. Um, and there I,
5: he is. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, our vision as a school system here is to have an equitable and excellent education for every student. And I was talking with one of my principals a couple of weeks ago about CEP and the effects that she's seen. And she said, you know, Dr. Lee, we talk about an equitable and excellent education for all of our students. But yet under the old system, under the old free and reduced system, we would get them to school. And we provide them books, we provide them. A quality teacher. We provide them a nice building to come to. We provide busing, but then we get them to school under the old system, and we categorize them by free, reduced, or paid. Mm-hmm. She said the beauty of this school, this system that we're under now, is we're not categorizing our students, and they're not a label of free, reduced, or paid. And this principal is very serious. She works in one of our high poverty schools. Uh, they were, they were uh, uh, I want to say, a little bit above 80% free-reduced under the old system. So she, sure, she certainly has her share of poverty, too. But she said, under the old system, the the paid kids knew who the free kids were. Yeah. The free kids knew who the paid kids were. And she said, despite the fact that we didn't do anything for them to know, they knew after they're around each other long enough, and she said there was shame from her students. Some of her students would begin to exhibit embarrassment at getting getting that free meal.
3: Mm-hmm,
5: and, mm-hmm. and the what we found was the older the students got, the greater that type of, of shame became. Right, and we had right. uh, my middle school, one of the counselors at the middle school said that under the old system, that students were somewhat stigmatized by other students and that, uh, she described how now under the new system that she's got students who are coming to the cafeteria who weren't eating before. They just, they just wouldn't eat. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, you know, and for whatever reason, they just didn't feel good about going through that line and getting that free meal and all their peers, knowing yeah. they're free students. So they would just not eat. Right. Well, and, uh, She said now those students are eating in the cafeteria, and Mm -hmm. they're not categorized by free, reduced, or paid. And according to my counselor at the the middle school, which our middle school has 1,600 students, so Mm -hmm. it's not a small school, she says it's changed the climate of the school in a positive way. Yeah, let's
1: talk about that. You you said that you've seen an uptick in um, academic performance, attendance. There's just a general... Um, kind of shift in the the tone, um, especially among your adolescents. What what what's happened, and to what extent do you credit CEP?
5: Well, our graduation rate now is eighty percent as a county. We were at seventy four percent about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have implemented CEP at our career academy. And our career academy is a it's a second high school. It's a small high school, and uh, we do have CEP there. In our achievement there has risen each year we're seeing more kids attending at the secondary level than we ever have before mm-hmm. uh and staying in school and graduating from school
3: yeah and
5: uh also our test scores are up to the school system on the state uh, accountability um report card we have improved each of the last four years and and under the new system under the last two years we've seen growth uh, so we feel like it's really transforming our schools in a positive way yeah
1: yeah that, and, that's just exciting um you know you, you you know you talked about the fact that your community is proud but I, I just wanted to you know talk a little bit about what you said to me about things that were going on before CEP there's there's a lot of kindness in your schools you said that before CEP a lot of hungry children would just have their meals quietly paid for by teachers and other staff. Yeah, I mean, do you have any idea how much of that was going on?
5: uh, There was a lot of that going on. I talked with one of our principals a few weeks ago at at one of our rural schools, a smaller school out in the county, and she told me that she had been there for about 15 years and she had been paying for lunches for students every year that she's been there, Mm -hmm. the children that didn't have the money to eat that she would slip them a little money so they could get their lunch. Yeah. Uh, I, I was talking with our assistant nutrition director, uh, and she was telling me that uh, our cafeteria staff has been paying for students for years. They've been paying for students to eat out of their own pockets. And,
3: oh, my goodness. And our
5: high school currently does not have CEP. Mm-hmm. All right? Our high school is our only school now that doesn't have CEP, and she was telling me this morning that our high school staff nutrition staff has been paid for seniors lunches that the bills that they owed those who did not have free or reduced she had been paid those their staff had been paid many of those students bills so that they could graduate tomorrow so we've got students who are going to graduate Uh, And our nutrition staff has been having to help out to pay their lunch Mm -hmm. uh, because the parents won't fill out the forms. And that's what she shared with me. I I said, now, could these students qualify for free or reduced? And, And I've been told that many of them could. And we've actually sent social workers to the house. To ask the parents to fill out the form, and many of them just won't follow through with filling out the forms for That's, their children.
1: That private and
5: uh, yeah, and the and the children suffer.
1: Well, you know, it's very moving to hear that your staff cares that much because obviously they're not getting rich uh, on the job. But but you know, I have to say it's impossible for that kind of private, one-on-one caring to function over time as a as a safety net. Um, but but I, I did want you to tell the story because it really speaks to the kind of culture you have
5: down there it's lovely yes ma'am yeah 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 well we love our we love our children Mm -hmm. and uh we want to take care of them and do all we can do for them right and i think that crosses all socioeconomic and racial boundaries and and uh and i'll tell you a story one of the secretaries had told me uh a few weeks ago in preparation uh for a meeting on this very subject she said that uh, one of our secretaries at, at one of our elementary schools, it's a little elementary school in the county, a uh, smaller school, it's a very, very rural school. Uh, that they had uh, had a grandparent that was raising a little third grade girl. The little girl's father had murdered uh, the mother, and mm. so therefore she didn't have a mother, and the father was in prison. And so the grandmother was, was raising her, and that uh, she, uh, the grandmother would check the child out quite often check her out of school early mm-hmm. and for whatever reason the grand grandmother would check her out fairly often and so one day the grandmother came to check her out and the secretary said she went down to the cafeteria to get the little girl and said she was had a little plate of tuna fish something kids typically wouldn't eat mm-hmm. you know a lot of kids don't like tuna fish and so she told the little girl said it's time to go said, grandmother's here to check you out she said Please don't make me leave right now. She said, if I don't get to eat this now, I won't eat again till tomorrow. Oh, and uh, yeah, so she, of course, let her sit there and eat her little plate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about children who need food. And uh, I think to say that we're going to go back on this, it's just not good. It's not good for children. It's not good. Um, for schools. It's, mm-hmm. it's not good for families. And uh, this this program has been a game changer for us here.
3: Right, right. And,
5: uh, you know, so uh, we certainly support continuing the CEP program just as it is.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
5: And, uh, well, Dr. Lees, so, I know
1: that you've been to Washington, so I'm assuming that the um, legislators you spoke with have heard all of this that you're telling us today.
5: We've tried to... Sp- tell our story and share the results that we're experiencing with with uh, the legislators that we have contact with and our congressmen mm-hmm. and uh, have had a chance to speak with with our congressman and uh, we're going to continue to to uh, carry the flag for CEP because I just I believe it's that important yeah,
3: yeah.
1: for
5: children and and that's what this is all about right, uh, right. so
1: and, and as I mentioned, you know, um, at the top of this interview, you, you would lose it um, as you do not, um, you know, reach the 60% um, identified student threshold. So there's a lot at stake in Coffee County here.
5: That's right. We mm-hmm. we would lose six of our schools we know right now would not be eligible. Yeah. yeah. We have 11 schools and six of those we know for a fact would not be eligible if the thresholds moved to 60%. Oh, that's huge. Uh, you know, and... and the tough part about that is is the families that are in the middle they're they're working they're surviving and they're doing the best they can do for their families and their children and this program has been a safety net for them yeah and we're not talking about people that that are making a lot of money. We're talking about a large population of people that are living paycheck to paycheck. And this program is certainly something that's positive for them. And to me, it's just good business to continue this program. It just makes too much sense. What more can we do with our tax dollars and feed children. I mean, I, like I said, I've not heard any pushback on that. From,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, you also any, and you also mentioned to me numbers. that your food service program has been more efficient. That you have. More staff now available to serve, as opposed to you know monitoring at the cash register who pays what, and you don't have to spend so much on um, staff time for processing applications. So, you know it's it's you know if we just want to talk about the money, it's been efficient in Coffee County. Uh, yeah, yeah,
5: that's that's the business side of mm-hmm. it. We we had a full time clerk at the central office who was a 12 month employee that was responsible for processing all the paperwork involved with the Free and Reduce program prior to CEP, all right, we've reduced that position from a 12-month position to a 10-month position mm-hmm. because we don't need anybody working over the summer processing all that paperwork. It's great. So yeah. we've eliminated months off of contracts for employees. Because we don't need them doing that job anymore.
1: Well, that's that's uh, a happy story for our taxpayers.
5: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so just just in and, terms of dollars and cents. Uh, it it's 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 helped at the point of sale. There's not as much uh, paperwork going on in our cafeterias, and they're able to focus on food preparation and running an efficient uh, cafeteria. Mm-hmm. So there's some benefits as far as efficiencies that we've picked up as the school system. Absolutely, it, it cut down on bureaucracy.
3: Right, right.
5: Um, well,
1: yeah, it's 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 you know I went all around, and and Dr. Lease, I'm I'm really um, so grateful you were able to join us today to tell us your story. Um, thank you, and best of luck um, going forward. Yes, with This you have been listening to Dr. Morris Lease, who is superintendent for the Coffee County School System in rural Georgia, and as you've heard, a passionate advocate for community eligibility. Um, This is Inside School Food. Uh, I think we may have a number of first-time listeners today, and if you are among them, I encourage you to visit InsideSchoolFood.com and mine our our archive. Uh, To date, we have nearly 100 conversations among peer leaders about progressive solutions in school food and other news and ideas that you can put to work. Um, While you're there, join our community by signing up for our newsletter or signing up for our news feeds on Facebook or Twitter. Um, Inside School Food is a production of the Heritage Radio Network. You can also find us there, along with a whole lot of cool podcasts about what's happening in the good food universe. Um, If you subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, you'll never miss an episode, so consider that. Um, Many thanks to today's engineer, Heritage Radio Executive Producer, Jack Inslee. Um, I'm Laura Stanley. Um, Inside School Food will be on hiatus for the next few weeks while we celebrate Memorial Day and attend the Farm to Cafeteria Conference in Madison. Um, If you're going to be at the conference, check out our workshop on Food Hubs or just look for me. I love making new friends.